yourself? Who do you perceive God to be? And who do you perceive yourself to be? And so last week we looked at Mark chapter 8 where Peter says aloud, uh, when Jesus asks, who, who do you say that I am? Uh, Peter correctly identifies Jesus as Messiah. And uh, so that was the beginning of Peter's understanding of, of who is training him and who is the, uh, with whom is he having this uh, experience of, of, of change. So today we're going to look at the question of who do you perceive yourself to be? And uh, this passage is insightful, uh, and I believe it gives us a good introduction to that. And this is John 13, um, Jesus uh, washing uh, the disciples' uh, feet, and uh, some of the implications of, of that for us today. Um, and so uh, let's read God's word and uh, let's ask him to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. In just a moment, you're going to hear uh, Jesus quoting, actually, Psalm 41 toward the end of this passage, around verse uh, 18. And uh, he's making a reference to Judas, the one who betrays him. And uh, it's a little bit archaic and strange for us culturally, but he uses this phrase from Psalm 41 um, about the one who has lifted his heel against me. So um, that's a little bit strange for us. Let me explain that, that that is a reference to the idea that someone would show the bottom of their foot to you. Um, and that was an offensive thing, and that meant that they were not your friend. <laughs> uh, so Jesus quotes Psalm 41 toward the end, and that's a little bit unusual for our modern ears to hear. And so I'll explain that ahead of time. John 13, verse 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, uh, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Uh, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have Wash your feet, you all also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of God. Let me ask the little ones to come up here, and I want to pray for them. And Miss Catherine is going to be their teacher today. Who do you perceive yourself to be? Well, here we go. John 13. Um, Let's pray for God's word. Lord, thank you for this moment. Uh, This is a vitally important moment uh, beyond my grasp of how important it is and beyond the grasp of those who hear, because you do above and beyond what we could ask or think. You are always bringing the purposes of your word to bear. And so, our Father, we cry out to you that you'll make us teachable, and you will even disciple and train me uh, right here on the spot as I seek to teach others. Teach me. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Um, Well, we continue to explore this important subject, um, these two subjects, uh, who do you perceive God to be and who do you perceive yourself to be? Um, I am uh, reflecting a bit on the 1970s. Um, I was a teenager then, and the 1980s even, and it's is very different uh, culturally than it was back in those days. So if you're interested in uh, a little bit of my historical reflections, um, I will tell you that at least as a person who grew up near the beach in Southern California, the beach communities, the, the kinds of books people were reading and seminars people were attending and stuff people were talking about, There was a lot of inner searching going on. People were on a quest for spiritual something. There was a lot of spiritualities going on. Um, But in our cultural moment, um, I'm not seeing a lot of people heading heading to the hills for spiritual retreats. Are you seeing that? Uh, I'm not seeing people uh, trying to cleanse themselves or uh, be at peace with themselves. Um, an author named Joseph Campbell has written a book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. It's been an influential book in, in movie making and, uh, and, uh, and for writers of novels. And Joseph Campbell writes of the zealot, a zealot. Uh, he says, instead of clearing his own heart, the zealot tries to clear the world. 
and I watch the news, and I see a lot of zealotry. Uh, years ago, people used to think that they were out of sync with the, the universe a bit, uh, or maybe radically out of sync. That means that there was trouble within them, and they would seek to try to get themselves lined up with the way things really are, but no more. Uh, no, we, we live in an age when uh, people want the world to conform to what's going on inside of them. Uh, and as a result, there's a lot of misery going on. Not to say that there was a, some golden age in the past, but there's a great deal of misery going on. And the question is, as this has been true of mankind for so long, it's characterized man as, as a fallen uh, uh, experience, mankind as a fallen experience. Um, who's going who's gonna to step in and fix this? <laughs> um, there's uh, all kinds of trouble in the human heart. Uh, and then what's going to be the fix? Um, political solution? Uh, pleasure? Um, think, you know, just think large term. What, what is going to fix mankind? And then, uh, of course, we're here and we're part of this biblical story. The biblical story is recorded for us in Scripture. And you know, we ask the question, well, what's being revealed in the biblical story? Um, and really what's going on is that God himself owns our stuff. Um, and uh, the story of the Old Testament, for instance, is a story of no one really cooperating with God, even though they were given plenty of instructions. No one really cooperates. Uh, no one really obeys, even though they know what the problem is. I say all this to say that in the end, we are watching God serve our needs. And here it is illustrated in this living parable, John 13. Um, so I want to talk to you about the goal of this living parable, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. The goal, uh, the growth of Peter's self-perception, uh, and the greatness of the master. There's a lot of details I won't cover about this parable or this living parable, but... Um, uh, Jesus talks openly about the goal of this parable. Uh, he explains this, uh, this living parable. He explains it quite in quite detail at the conclusion. Uh, if I have done this, so you should do this. So he's, he's very, very clear in the application for his disciples. So let's talk, first of all, the goal of this parable. Uh, verse 12, do you understand what I have done for you? So he as a good teacher, he summarizes and he applies the lesson and he's, you know. Do you, do you guys get this? Um, uh, as a good teacher, he asks for feedback. Um, are you taking this to heart? Uh, well, Jesus sets an example. Uh, that's clear. He serves the, the needs of the disciples. He cleanses their feet. Um, of course, we all, I think many of us know that this is a referring to a custom of that day when you would have a, a servant, even the word here is slave, uh, who would be uh, attending guests who came to a house, their feet were dirty from travel, and so before you entered the house, your feet were washed by this unknown person. You probably didn't know their name. Um, and so the very first thing we observe is that Jesus associates himself with an overlooked person. 
Um, he becomes part of that class of people who are servants without names, without being noticed. And he's living out uh, what he's going to do on the cross. He's going to become um, a servant to the needs of these disciples and to all who believe. Um, this was a shame-based culture. Uh, and that is that people were very hyper-aware of, uh, of how they looked, how they talked, what they ate, who they associated with. Uh, and nothing signaled more about who you are than, than your role in life, uh, your class in life. Uh, do you serve people or do people serve you? So nothing signaled more about your true status. And uh, here we have the eternal Son of God enfleshed in our humanity, uh, having descended from glory, and he keeps descending. He keeps descending. So he's already, he's affirmed our humanity, which is a fantastic. In other words, it's, it's a good thing to be human being. But then he's taken on the role of a servant and slave, and he is descending further and further to places that most of us would never want to go. Um, my brother Jeff and I visited Bangladesh this last February. Uh, then the COVID thing was underway, and we came back. And, but while we were there, we went to a marketplace, a very busy, busy marketplace in Dhaka, the capital city, 22 million people there. And uh, in this marketplace, I have a little camcorder uh, recording. If you want to come on over, we can watch it together. Um, and I was holding this camcorder down by my waist, not trying to draw a lot of attention to this Westerner with a camera. Uh, and enjoying the time, we're just amazing. It's just amazing uh, scenes and uh, fruit, vegetables, all kinds of people in the market there. Uh, dirty, dirty markets, uh, open markets are dirty. The, you know, where you're walking is uh, pretty filthy. Um, and uh, we noticed within a few minutes uh, a man who was on the floor of, of the marketplace. Uh, it was somewhat paved in this section. And this man was crawling around on the floor of the marketplace uh, among people walking past him. And he had a little scraping device in his hand, and he was scraping the dirt off and all kinds of other stuff uh, off the floor of the marketplace and putting it in a basket. That was his job. Um, I think in the Bengali culture, uh, that would be a person who's probably at the lowest rung of the social ladder. Uh, there are also perhaps even one step below that, if it's even possible, uh, the sewers in Dhaka are completely a uh, disaster. Um, and they have to be cleaned out. Uh, they don't have any fancy technology. Uh, and they actually have men who descend into uh, that muck literally and actually in order to somehow clean out the sewers. So it's a third world country for sure. And even there, you have a class of people who are at the lowest rung. 
When Jesus talks about being a servant, we know what he means. We know where he's going. Uh, he's going to go to a place where he's not even going to be considered a human being. He's going to hang uh, between heaven and earth in no man's land. And he's going to be crucified uh, on the town uh, trash heap. And he does this to serve the needs uh, of those who will believe in him. Um, and so he debriefs with his disciples and he tells them that the goal of this parable is for you to understand it at a heart level, embodied level in your own life. What I, Jesus, does for you, you are actually going to serve other people in the same manner. You are not going to be concerned about your status in life. Follow me. I'm descending. Uh, do you understand what I've done for you? Verse 12. And he descends to the status of an overlooked person in order to make other people presentable. So when you have your feet washed and you're going to a party at someone's house, you are presentable, right? You've gone through the custom and it actually does accomplish something and you are now made presentable. Isn't that a picture of salvation? So the work of Jesus... His blood, his atonement, his rising from the dead, his granting you faith and justifying you, making you beautiful through his atonement, through his work, he has now made you presentable. You've come into his house and he has cleansed you. So it's really not about feet and dirt, is it? No, of course, it's we who, if you catch the story, you're going to, oh, I see, he's He's making people presentable. So it's a parable, a living parable about how does Jesus descend to the place of being overlooked and now he serves the needs of other people in order to make them presentable. So here's the question for us. I'll ask this a couple times throughout our sermon today. Who do you perceive yourself to be? Do you perceive yourself to be needy? Uh, do you need to be cleansed? Um, do you need someone to serve you out because you have a growing sense of your desperation? Or are you armor-plated? You can be armor-plated as a religious person. You can be armor-plated because of your moral achievements in life. You can be in other words, your self-perception might be just perfectly intact. I'm fine. Didn't get the greatest grades, and uh, yeah, but, but I'm fine. You see, we spend most of our energy, I think. I don't know if you maybe come up and talk, talk to me afterwards. Christians have an unusual habit of falling into evaluation mode about everyone else. This is a, parable, a living parable about someone who, who stops that behavior and begins to evaluate themselves. You mean, are you talking about my issues, Jesus? And it's interesting that the one who seems to be lacking in the, in the most uh, 
lacking the most in self-perception. <laughs> Peter, who speaks and then thinks, you know what I'm saying? Uh, the one who seems to lack the most here is actually the one who is now catching on. Who do you perceive yourself to be? And Peter woke up that morning, I'm, I'm fine. I mean, I'm a Jew. I haven't eaten certain foods. I haven't associated with certain people. I'm actually part of the kingdom of God in, in a very real sense. I have status in the world. He was a humble fisherman, but he was a Jew. He was separated from the, the, the non-Jewish world. You see, true self-discovery comes in proximity to Jesus. If Peter had been left out in the boat fishing, he would have been, I think his self-esteem would have been pretty all right. His perception of being cleansed was, uh, I don't think he walked around that way. Do you think he did? I don't think he did. So as a fisherman, his self-esteem was intact and he was fine. He didn't need any radical reevaluation of himself. Who do you perceive yourself to be? Well, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. So uh, Peter has a partial understanding in this passage. We know that he is in process. We know he's not a finished product or coming out of this experience, but he makes some, cool, some pretty cool things happen to him. And uh, what's the goal here? The goal here is to have your mind and will and actions and pursuits and loves and desires find a new center. Yourself will diminish in an appropriate way. Not in self-loathing, I'm a terrible person, but I now have a new way of understanding myself in the context of being cleansed through Jesus. The love of God has served me in Jesus. I'm redeemed, I'm purchased, I'm served so well, I'm restored, I'm loved to the core. I now perceive myself not in terms of a sinner, but beloved and received and cleansed. Yes, we do continue to struggle with sin, but the ministry of Jesus is to restore and cleanse people. And critical to this is one's self-perception. Now, I stand before you as one whose self-perception <laughs> was uh, altered at my conversion. Uh, a prideful young man went to church at 19 and had an evaluation by the living and holy God who looked into my life. It was a most unpleasant experience of self-knowledge. And uh, the American church has picked up on that. Yeah, that's kind of difficult stuff. I mean, telling someone their status before a holy living God, that's a little bit rough. It might be hard on their self-esteem. And so we've adopted, in general, a very different gospel, a therapeutic gospel. We want people to feel a certain way. It'll never be restored until they cry out, oh, don't just wash my feet. <clears throat> 
It's the whole of me. So when Jesus asked the question, do you understand what I've done for you? I've set before you your need. I've set before you your need, and I've modeled what it's like to move in the redemptive, restorative grace of God. Because we, too, will move in that same restorative grace of God and serve the needs of other people. So let's now let's move secondly on to the growth of Peter's self-perception. All right, Peter refuses to have his feet washed. He, he has some grasp of what's going on. Wait a minute, you don't, you don't take the role of a servant. You're our king, you're our lord. You're, you don't take that role. Peter refuses this. And then Peter is assured, listen, Peter, you don't fully grasp what's going on, but you, it'll be revealed to you. And Peter has a grasp of some self-knowledge that creeps in. And uh, as Jesus begins or begins to wash his feet or propose the idea of washing his feet, Peter re rejects it. It's just too painful. This is, what is this? I don't want you to serve me. And then he understands and grasps that if we're talking about being cleansed, if we're talking about my conscience, if we're talking about things that I don't want to even admit to myself. And from that moment, Peter then exclaims, not my feet, but my hands and my head also, the whole of me. We connect here with Calvin's thought, none of us will seek after God until we begin to be displeased with ourselves. And Peter is flooded with insight of his personal need. And I can only say to you, this is the grace of God. We do not come by way of an understanding of our need except for the grace and mercy of God. To be utterly dependent upon God to open our eyes is a fact of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14 describes the non-believer among Christian worshipers. And it describes that as they are observing and watching the praise of God, they're hearing the gospel, the non-believer, it's interesting, self-knowledge is being communicated to the, to the non-believer during that moment. And Paul describes it this way, the secrets of their hearts are revealed to them. This means that the service is going on, everything's fine, preacher's doing his thing, the songs are going on, the prayers are happening. But the, the non-believer is recognizing and hearing and perceiving and understanding aspects of their life that they've been hiding, aspects of their uh, conscience that are becoming real to them, Things that they have been hiding from themselves are now made real to them by the Spirit of God. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, that the non-believer then exclaims, surely God is in your midst. That arises out of this self-knowledge. 
that interesting? We're utterly dependent upon God to bring knowledge of ourselves to bear. And what is so uh, unique and a blessing to be part of the church, and that is that God brings for us, we don't have Jesus bringing a basin of water. That's what Peter had. We have the word of God among us in our midst, and God has ordained a way for people to hear their need for cleansing. For people to say to themselves, not my feet, but everything about me. And Romans 10, 14 says, how are they to call upon him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to believe unless they are sent? This means that Jesus is in our midst using preaching, using the scriptures to awaken us to our, the necessary self-knowledge we have to have of our condition. You are here believing in Jesus because God has brought the necessary self-knowledge to you that broke down your pride, that broke down your pretense, that caused you to cry out, oh, I need this cleansing. And this is the necessary view of, that has to happen to a person. And here's what typically people think this. They sort of think of, of um, the, Christian, the Christian who believes. I don't know if you ever had this happen to you. It's, it's, it feels a little condescending. But um, people might sort of patronize you because you're religious. I don't know if you've had this experience. Isn't that nice? Oh, I'm glad that works out for you. You know, you're at a party and someone's kind of nodding. And they don't really know what to say. Maybe they've never met a, or hung out with a, someone who's a believer. And so they don't know what to say. But they, they want to say that it's, I'm glad it's meaningful for you. Or I'm glad it makes, you find it meaningful. I don't know if you've had this experience. There's something about even the name of Jesus that, that it starts to shake people a little bit because they don't want to touch it. It changes the, the atmosphere in the room. And so we want to switch the meaning. We want to move it away. We want to hide from the possible revelation that might be coming my way. So what is Peter's self Revelation here. What does he what does he learn about himself? Here it, here's it, here it is. He's asking for the whole of him to be washed, right? That's what it's like to repent. Typically we think of repentance as specific acts, which is important, like things that we have done that are wrong. That's important, and we turn away from those things. But repentance, biblically speaking, is this. Repentance is not just, yeah, I've done this wrong. Oh, yeah, that, oh, that wasn't good. Oh, yeah, that individual acts. Repentance is a system-wide thing. Repentance is the whole foundation upon which I've been living, uh, the whole foundation upon which I've been trying to make myself presentable, the whole foundation upon which I have said, look, I'm clean. The whole foundation... 
This is why the call upon Jesus is total. I remember speaking to a group of, uh, of Christians on, the, on a similar subject, and I used uh, the phrase that we are moral failures. <laughs> I didn't quite think anything of it. Um, I still don't think anything of it. Um, I think I'm a moral failure in every single possible way before God's law, uh, in the spirit and actually. I, I don't have any, I mean, I, yeah, I think that's true. And I remember talking to someone afterwards, and they were rolling their eyes at me. And they kind of mocked me. And they said, well, after all, we're, we're moral failures. And they were offended at the idea. And you see, when you, when you touch someone, if God touches someone, if, if, if it happens, you touch someone's system of righteousness, you're touching their life. And if they pride themselves in moral achievement, you'll probably feel it before you hear it from them. And this is where we, can, along with Peter, can say the whole of me, my whole system by which I justify myself, make myself presentable, wash my own feet so I go inside the house, the whole system is, comes crashing down in the Christian gospel. And when we're around non-Christians, we should be free to just say, oh, I'm an utter fool. I'm a, I am a living example of foolishness. Now, that might distract you. Like, you might, I, I'm not going to talk that way. There are some non-Christians I know that I can't wait to say that to them. I'm at some dinner party somewhere, and I say, oh, wait, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Talking about Christians taking over America? We're talking about Christians with moral superiority? Let me, I want you to know, before you have your beanie-weenie, Right here. I'm only in this thing because of the grace of God. Apart from the grace of God, I am an absolute moral failure in every single possible way. And there are preschoolers who are in some way more morally consistent than I am. So when Peter cries out with this self-knowledge, he is having an experience of desperation Jesus, you can't possibly know the depth of how much I need to be clean. You, you don't. You don't know. You don't know it. It's interesting to watch someone go through conversion, at least as much as I can tell. It's often beyond words. It's often beyond words. People are so emotionally and spiritually caught up in the beauty and wonder and terror of the experience, meaning it is more beautiful than they ever imagined. And they just want it all. That's it. They just want it all. So we're being, by the way, we're being remade. I don't want any of you to walk away with a sort of a downcast feel today. You are have been cleansed in order to re-engage the true story of the world. That's what's going on here. Peter, you, you don't want Peter to be a preacher of the gospel who hasn't gone through this experience. That's, an, that's a terrible thing. Have you ever had that experience? Uh, someone who stands before you, uh, uh, morally righteous, 
a zealot who keeps thinking the problem's out there. If we had a street sign, I could change it, you know, you know the street sign. I, would, I think the first thing I'd put on that sign is this, the problem's in here. That's what I'd do, if you'd feel comfortable with that. Or the problem's behind the pulpit. People might come, I'm gonna, people might come on in, I'm going to see that problem. If there isn't a foundation of humility, this Christian thing isn't going to get past the walls of Jerusalem. All right, now, the greatness. Now, it's interesting how Jesus concludes this. He talks about the greatness of the master. Let's look at that for wrapping this up. Uh, and again, there's more, there's more to this than I can talk about. I'm not going to mention Judas. He's kind of in the background of a lot of this. Uh, verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? And now here, here's the application. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Uh, and here's the problem of creed. I got the right creed, but it's not uh, actually happening in my life. Right? So you call me teacher and Lord. Are you moving in the same uh, you, are you in the same lane as I am, right? You get an A on the quiz, but you haven't been changed by what you studied, right? So this is it, an integration of mind, will, thought, deed. Mind, will, thought, deed, and complete integration. We've all been influenced in many ways positively and in some ways negatively by the Greek mindset, Western civilization people. We've all been influenced by the Greeks. And so the Greeks basically looked at a quiz and said, good, you, you, wow, you got an A. You know this stuff. Now, a Hebrew uh, school would never say that. They would say, good job on the quiz. Let's see if you can build a doghouse. If you can't build it, if you can't actually do it, you don't know it. Uh, and so we have... Uh, been in a negative way been very much influenced by our, our perception of knowing something has been very much influenced by the Greek thought um, uh, but we've all been around uh, people who just talk but don't do it's been painful hasn't it uh, friendships for instance We've had people feign friendships. We didn't really think it. We thought of them as our friends. But then we found out when it came down to really doing friendship. Oh, that's interesting. They, they don't show up. They, they, you thought they were a person you could rely upon. And what Jesus is saying is that he's going to build a kingdom that has people who have to have an integration of mind, will, actual living this out. If I am your Lord and teacher and I have not assumed superiority over you and I have served you, so should you. Do you now understand my example? And then he argues this way. He presents it in, a, he's actually applied it a couple different ways. And here's another one. He says in verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, uh, and reason with me, guys, you can hear it. Uh, a servant is not greater than his master, 
And then he brings up greatness. A messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. So what can get in the way of integrating this, uh, disciples? Your pride. You think this is beneath you. So Jesus defines greatness in the kingdom as servant, servanthood. Uh, the FedEx driver isn't greater than the CEO of the company. And it would be a really troubling company if the drivers all presented themselves as if they ran the place. Now, they give directives, and they're in charge, right? But here, it's more like the uh, undercover boss TV show. Jesus has put on a disguise. The Lord and the King has now put on a disguise in human, in human form, um, listening to employees and serving their needs. Do you remember that show? But he's driving this point. What's the greatness of Jesus? He goes all the way to the end in order to serve the needs of those who will believe in him. It means that he's the king and he rules, but he rules through giving. His greatness is defined by love and love that descends to the lowest place. And Jesus addresses people who are in close proximity to himself and who have the truths about him and who can rightly identify him, but they don't know the direction he's going, but they will. The Holy Spirit will come, and they will begin to serve the needs of people who are really different than them, Jews caring about non-Jews, people in Jerusalem caring about people who live in Athens, and this will truly turn the world upside down. Is a servant greater than his master? Uh, only if he thinks he is because he's prideful. <laughs> and what does Jesus do? In all that he does, he undercuts our pride. Because he loves us in a way that we never, ever would have imagined. And how does he do it? He makes us presentable. He cleans us up. And then he says, this one's mine. And he's with us as he brings us into his father's kingdom. He's unashamed of us. He's removed all our dirt. And he went to the lowest, lowest depths to do that for us. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, there's a mystery here. You are a king who serves his subjects. You love us to the very utmost. We ask, oh God, you help us to move into that love. Thank you for your proximity to us today in this worship service and now in the Lord's Supper. Thank you that as we are with you, you change us. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen.